Hi there, and welcome to episode 55 of Right Where You Are Sitting Now, uh, the podcast for the site sittingnow.co.uk. So we've been away again for a while. Um, Kind of last year was a bit of a test run. Um, See the response to us coming back, and uh, yeah, it was good. We really, uh, really appreciate how well it went. Um, So yeah, we're kind of coming back now in a slightly different way. We're actually going to start approaching Sitting Now as more of a professional endeavour, which means... If you're a fan of the show, that's great because you're going to get a ton of new content. Um, we set up a YouTube channel. If you search for Sitting Now, one word, S-I-T-T-I-N-G-N-O-W, um, you'll find our channel. There's all the old episodes on there. There's our old Scarlet Imprint um, uh, like event coverage on there. But there's going to be a lot of new video content basically coming out from us. We're going to start going around the land looking for occult things and... Uh, uh, you know, strange and paranormal things. Um, so that's going to be a bit of a focus of what we're doing moving forward, that and this podcast. Um, we're also going to start doing a live version of this podcast. Um, we're sort of waiting on some, basically there's some, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, boring stuff, but stuff nonetheless. And there's not a lot we can do about it. Um, in, until that thing gets sorted, um, we, we're, we're stuck in, uh, in this kind of state of podcasting but the idea is we are going to start live streaming um moving forward um now this episode today uh we i did record with ulysses black but unfortunately he's you know not available to record the intro and outro we did actually record an intro and outro but someone forgot to press record on our new fancy uh roadcaster um it was me okay i'll admit it it was me yeah so i'm here solo but you know you're used to that by now if you've listened to this show for a long time. I've, I've done this very many times on my own. Um, one thing, we've just set up an Instagram. There's nothing on it at the moment, but we'd appreciate some love. Again, it's sitting now, S-I-T-T-I-N-G-N-O-W. And we're going to set up a Twitter probably and a Discord is our plan. Um, we're also going to do some other new stuff, which I can't really talk about at the moment, but there's lots of stuff planned. And like I said, I've kind of pivoted my own personal life towards um, being able to do this a lot more frequently um and a lot more professionally which is great because you know video i come from the filmmaking world and you know audio we've kind of done that for a long time already but anyway i'm kind of waffling a bit now so let's um let's uh let's have a look at who we've got coming on today today is author peter gray um now old fans of sitting now will know peter because we did a series of videos years and years ago um of the two Scarlet Imprint events. Peter runs Scarlet Imprint with Alcestis uh, Dimesh, his partner, um, and they are probably single-handedly responsible for this kind of explosion of uh, high-quality new occult material coming out into the world. Um, Peter's a really great guy. Um, we know him personally, as you'll you know, you'll come to see in the episode. Um, he's also uh, just a fantastic writer um and today he's coming on to talk about his new book called the two antichrists which is a great title um it's a book about uh well you'll have to find out in the uh in the interview but it's a it's a fantastic book and i recommend everyone pick it up so, but uh before i kind of waffle myself into oblivion let's cut over to the interview and i'll see you on the other side
Hi, Peter Gray. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's uh, been a long time coming. We've had you in video form, but never in uh, audio form before. Um, so could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? Sure. Um, it, great to be on. Uh, great to be on the show, Ken. It's been um, it's been too long. I think the last time that we were all together in any kind of space was in Brighton, perhaps seven years ago um, at the Summer of Love, mm-hmm. when uh, I had hair, and uh, and yeah, we've um, we've come along. We've 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 been on quite a long journey from then. So I'm um, I'm Peter Gray. I'm an, an occultist and magician. I'm the the co-founder of Scarlet Imprint, which is one of the leading occult um, and magical publishers in the world. Uh, my personal work is very much concerned with uh, with witchcraft, with liberation, with the, the strand of magic which has come out of um, broadly Thelema, um, but particularly has been inspired by the work of Jack Parsons, and which has taken me in, in some quite strange directions as a result of that. So the work I'm doing is very much at the both at the cutting edge of what's happening in the in the magical um, in in the latest iteration of the magical revival, but also very much with a foot in in solid solid scholarship um, and uh, and practitioner based material. Oh, brilliant! So, the first thing I was going to ask you about really was like, how have you been? Like, how uh, we're obviously all going through this bizarre, you know, worldwide scenario at the moment. Um, how have you how have you weathered COVID? Well, I think I think like everyone, rather than um, rather than trying to pretend that everything's been plain plain sailing, um, clearly it hasn't been. I know a lot of people have suffered from from um, from mental health episodes through it, and I've noticed that my own mood, even though I have a pretty solid routine, was was up and down throughout the throughout the lockdown. But we had a we had a pretty we had a pretty good lockdown in the fact that me and Alcestis are like inseparable and we're, we're, we're just, we just love being with each other. So the world being shut out wasn't a dramatic change for us. Um, but the curtailing of freedom certainly has been, um, we've also been working probably harder than, um, a lot of people in the lockdown, um, which is fortunate, um, because most of the occultists around the world decided that this was a great opportunity to buy books. So we spent, <laughs> we spent a lot of the lockdown, um, um, posting and sending books to to our readers and aid packages and making sure that things got through. Uh, so so yeah, we had a we had a pretty pretty hectic lockdown. And we managed to produce quite a lot of work. I was going to actually ask you about Scarlet Imprint a little bit, like kind of what was the impetus behind starting it, and you know, like how did you kind of make it cool to release occult books again? Because it did seem to be a fairly stagnating market before you guys came along. Yeah, and things were things were 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 pretty dead in the occult at that period. Um, something that the people on the internet aren't, probably aren't aware of because they, they're not, you know, I mean, obviously countries will change and, and scenes will change, but in England, the scene was pretty moribund. Um, and I'd written, I'd written the red goddess, um, which is my study of the goddess Babylon. And I was looking to, um, I was looking to get it published and none of the publishers just really, really, caught my eye for for a variety of reasons and also because I wanted to I wanted to be able to publish something magically I wanted to be able to produce a, a book which was published at a specific date with specific um, limitations with you know all of all of these all of these kind of awkward things which makes you like an unpublishable author by by any commercial press um, those kind of demands are are, are ridiculous 
um, in themselves. But I wanted to I wanted to do something magical. I wanted to to release this book um, both both to honor Babylon and to create some significant change in the world, which which sounds strange when you're releasing a book in, a, in an edition of 156 copies. But in order to do that, we we had to we had to create a publishing company from scratch, which which I did with Alcestis. So she was very much the proof for the the completion of the work, and and she is. Um, She's she's at least fifty percent of Scarlet Imprint, so all design typography, um, a lot of the vision comes out comes out of the work that she brings to it. So we we created a we created a published company publishing company, um, which was a, a a wildly foolish thing to do, as everyone everyone told us at the time um, the old adage that you know how do you make a small fortune in publishing? Well, you start with a large fortune uh, <laughs> because it's it's commercially a ridiculous, a ridiculous proposition. Um, although that has changed with with digital publishing and um, also with some of the ridiculous prices that people charge for books, um, but we we try not to do that. Um, it was yeah, it was a it was it was a huge and crazy risk. Um, we published the first book and then. Um, then we published uh, a second book, a collection called Howlings, which was a practitioner connect collection, uh, which was something that we we really felt was missing from the modern occult um, bookshelf. I mean, one one of the ways that we looked at these things is, is the conversations that we had, looking at bookshelves and going, well, where are the books that we want to read? You know, why? Why don't these books exist? And so we set about remedying that by making those books manifest in the world. Um, and that that was the genesis of Scarlet Imprint. I remember you talking about when we were talking in Brighton, you were talking about the books having a kind of talismanic property. I was wondering if you yeah. could speak to that a bit. Sure. Um, as, as control freak magicians, we're always trying to, um, we're always trying to, produce magical effects by bringing a whole series of harmonious elements to bear in the creation of anything. So the creation of an object is the creation of a talisman. You have the elements of timing, you have the materials, you have the colors, you have, um, you have, a, you know, even down to the type, even, even down to the, the font that you're using. So every element of a book in the, in the process of selection is designed to, is designed to create something which is a, a harmonious, complete whole. So this happens in like normal design. If you talk to a graphic designer, they'd have a they'd have a similar idea of it. But as a as a ritual magician, preparing a book is exactly the same as preparing a, a ceremony. So if you're doing a if you're doing a Venus ritual, then you're going to have a particular color, you're going to have a particular number, you're going to have all of these things which feed into it. And so the books are very much the books are very much living objects. Um, and that's something that that's something that's borne out in the process of making these things. I mean, there's a there's a spirit of the book, and the the finding of the spirit of the book is something that occurs in the process of of working on the edit, of of working on the design, of spending time with it, of thinking of the the spirit or the spirits which are contained within that book, and and allowing them to speak um, and bringing that through. So when we say when we say talismanic. Um, you know, you, you can think about the high end sort of, you know, fine binding books that we make where you're able to make things out of particular, 
particular materials that there are certainly benefits from working with with living things like um like working with leather is useful working um working with vellum is useful um working with the artisans through the process and that 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 hands-on approach can be can be extremely beneficial if you're a magician and you're trying to put force force into an object that conveys to people but none of that is worth a damn thing if the writing itself doesn't stack up so, so it's very it's it's you know you can create pretty looking things superficially but whether you can create something which carries a degree of force and energy with it and a signature is a is a different thing altogether i wonder if i could just jump in there peter as you sort of get to that little section because um well we've known each other for an extremely long time and you've you've brought out this new book um and it, there's a sort of a clear kind of relationship back all the way back to the uh, first book, The Red Goddess. Um, and one thing that I realised that I don't think I've ever actually said to you, and now is the better time than any, um, you're a really, really good writer. So just the actual wordcraft itself is fantastic. And um, exactly so with this, uh, with your latest book, the uh, two antichrists where i mean just the language i've absolutely seduced uh it's a page turner so i've never actually said that to you before and i thought actually do you know what now's the time no thanks man I, re I really appreciate it i mean it's it's where it's where i put a lot of my effort i mean one one of the one of the difficulties often with magic is that the people who are writing in our field tend to be tend to be amateurs and they, they tend to be enthusiasts and they don't they're not necessarily writers. Whereas I come from a I come from a writing background. I mean, for 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 people who, who don't know me or haven't known me as long as you do. I mean, my my background is in is in um, is in magazine writing and then working writing for the Internet. And so writing is like writing is my. One of my primary one of my primary forms of performing magic is in the writing in the same way that say Austin Osman Spares, um, you know, primary gift is with, is with his drawings. So the, the creation of a, the creation of a, a text which transports and, and, um, and transforms people is, is very much where, where I, where I focus a, a lot of my effort. Um, and also where I draw a lot of my inspiration from when I look at the way that, that other writers have done this and other writers have been able to um, to encode these things and to transmit these things through their work. So, so no, I appreciate, I appreciate the kind words. Oh, well, I mean, uh, they're absolutely earned. And, you know, I've, I'm, I've only read 30 pages of the book. I only received it yesterday and I'm just um, burning my way through it as fast as I can, as time permits. But, uh, it's interesting sort of reading this and seeing the evolution from uh, from the Red Goddess. And uh, so I think maybe we should probably open up, open up the conversation about this new book, The uh, Two Antichrists. Yeah. Because uh, there is an awful lot of Peter Gray in it and there is um, an awful lot of that force you were talking. There's, I mean, I could not get away from the fact that this is a call to arms. Um, arms may or may not be the right word, but a, a call to action. And yep. you're talking about this force behind the words and the the magical act of effectively sowing ideas into people's minds, I guess. Um, so 
so this this what's what's brought the the two antichrists this book uh, about the relationship between Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard what's brought this out for for you now and sure. you know can we start unpacking that a bit yeah um for people who've for people who've read some of my kind of earlier work so you know for me the red goddess is a piece of juvenilia I mean, it's a really, it's an effective book. It's, it was designed to, to break a lot of the pompous magical writing. So it's, it's almost gonzo in style. Um, it's very, it's very direct and impassioned and, and is a, a pretty wild book. It's a wild ride. And I, I stand absolutely behind it as a text. It still continues to work, but my writing, my writing has gone in a, a whole range of different directions. And this, this book, the two antichrists is, is, is like, like all, all, um, like all good things, uh, a, a terrible mistake. Um, because last year I was meant to be writing, um, Lucifer Praxis. I was meant to be finishing off the second book in my, in my Lucifer series. Um, this was, this was absolutely my plan. The year was looking like it. I have at least half of the book like stacked up and written on my desk. Um, but I got, uh, I got, I got pulled off course um, somewhat, but as a magician, um, rather than a hack, what I try to do is rather than rather than simply produce books to order or books for market, I'm also engaged in my own magical process. I'm also engaged in in a in in a work of my own, um, which does produce these objects. But that's you know that's not always primarily what I'm doing. So I came across a curious. Um, biography that came out last year by um in the science fiction field by a guy called alec navala lee um called astounding which was about um the early days of the science fiction pub magazines and the reason that i picked it up is that um is that the the subject of the book um campbell was also the co-founder of dianetics with l ron hubbard and Hubbard, of course, was Parsons' accomplice in the Babylon working. And the existence of the book, even before I got it, opened up a, a variety of kind of like questions in my mind about, about, about the Babylon working and about the stories around it that hadn't been told. And the fact that there was a whole... Um, there were a whole range of people arrayed around Jack Parsons. I mean, the, the work didn't occur in a vacuum. His notes on it are pretty skeletal. I mean, there's there's very little of it, and um, there's there's some more which is which is caught up in archives um, and controlled by by OTO. Um, but there are other sources, and one of the sources is the testimony of L. Ron Hubbard and the testimony of the science fiction writers who were also friends of Jack and were and were around him in the world at that time and suddenly this kind of this whole world sort of opened up and i got a sense of i got a sense of other texts and other times and other compulsions um and other forces that were at play and what i found um as i approached it was that the world that jack found himself in um that i i frame in the book as being between the Trinity nuclear test and the Roswell incident, this kind of this kind of very strange period in history where the nuclear bomb has become um, has become a, 
a real thing in the world and the threat of global annihilation has occurred and people are asking a whole series of um, extremely necessary questions about how we cope with this, how we cope with this new force and how we how we manage to avoid destroying ourselves in the process. And Jack, Jack kind of blends together the the theme of the bomb and the theme of the kind of man that we need to become to deal with those forces, but also the the sexual imperative and the force of Babylon and how these two these two things work as a dialectic. And that's that to me is very similar to the world that we find ourselves in now. So Jack's world was on the edge of on the edge of uh, space flight. So you know, famously his solid rocket fuel placed man on the moon. And we're now in a in another place where we have the nuclear threat is going to become much more present in our minds as the America and China great game starts to gather force. Um, and we're starting to see that this year in Taiwan um, with England sending a, an aircraft carrier with the American fleet and potential nuclear conflict with, with China um, starting to hot up that we should all be slightly concerned about. Um, but also we have some new things that we have to play with here. We also have the threat of ecological collapse and, and, um, and the destruction of all, all life on earth as a result of the ecological damage that we've sown. And that was one of the, well, that was one of the clear messages within apocalyptic witchcraft was, was, um, was dealing with what people call the Anthropocene. The, the fact that we're, we're in this, this process of, of destruction and grieving and what we do with it. But, to Antichrist is a bit more of an optimistic book in that it also looks to the fact that we are on the verge of becoming an interplanetary civilization, which is such a huge and ridiculous sounding science fiction idea. It's it's almost impossible to to like it's almost impossible to get our heads around it, even though we've all kind of grown up with with science fiction as as the kind of like you know the Jungian dream space that's been played out for us by you know George Lucas or or the the myths that we see um, reinterpreted in um, in Ridley Scott with his alien um, with his alien um, works. So we're in a kind of similar place to Jack was. We're we're on the edge of a a, a very new space frontier. We're facing all kinds of forces of destruction, and so there was a sense that that there was a sense to me that 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 Jack wanted to speak again, and that his ghost had not been entirely laid to rest properly, and that there was an opportunity to reassess his work and bring it to a modern audience and and draw draw their attention to these parallels that 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 exist and and hopefully try to find a way through it okay so um if we think of uh jack parsons as as uh as both magician and scientist uh you know rocket engineer yeah um obviously most magicians uh practicing magicians i'd say obviously not necessarily obviously but most practicing magicians are not rocket scientists Sure. Um, and yet, globally, as a as a species, we're looking to the stars. Yeah. How how do you see the magician who isn't the rocket scientist fitting into that equation? Yeah. I mean, luckily, um, we we have some rocket scientists. We um, one of one of the curious things of being um, the running scholar imprint is I probably have the best idea of 
who and where all of the serious global magical practitioners are. And there is a huge range of people. It's not um, it's not simply people living at home with their mum because they can't get their shit together. I mean, there there are a lot of um, there are a lot of there are a lot of highly powered individuals out there who are magical practitioners or magically adjacent. But the way that I've the way that I've looked at this, um, the way that I've looked at this is I've introduced um, an idea called the called the aperture. So my thesis is that for life to survive, not not simply human life, not putting Jeff Bezos in a fucking spaceship and 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 sending him to Mars to escape the cataclysm. I mean that that just doesn't work. I mean. Um, Rather than seeing, rather than seeing space as, as as something which is for the elite, which is for the few, which is an escape hatch. I mean, it 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 certainly isn't. And if you read the accounts of of what it actually means to spend time in space, you quickly realise that this is a this is a pretty inimical environment to be in. Um, so, so space is out there, but we have a we have an aperture problem, which is that. In order for us to become an interplanetary species, which we must, in order to pre- in order to prevent the annihilation of the species, either either now um, as a result of environmental collapse, or later as a result of meteor strike, or any of the other calamities that could befall our very fragile Earth, we need to we need to tool up and we need to quickly prioritize establishing the Mars colony as a civilizational aim for all of mankind i mean this is a this is a big idea we we've shown that we're unable to unite behind many things but i think this is perhaps the only idea which can reintroduce us to our common shared humanity and the fact that we're all implicated into it now the aperture is the problem the aperture is the fact that as we despoil and destroy the planet the possibilities of us doing this become slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. So we're really we're really in an eye of the needle situation. And that's made worse by the fact that space industries are highly polluting, toxic, you know, um, resource heavy, extractive industry. So in order to go to Mars, we are adding more ecological damage to an already overburdened Earth system. But my proposal is that rather than seeing the industrial space project as one thing and ecology as another thing, that the two are intrinsically linked. And the only way that we can actually become a functioning interstellar civilization is if we radically work at uh, ecological restoration in order to extend the window that allows us to do that. So when you ask, what what is the magician to do who's not a rocket scientist well the answer is that if you if you understand the aperture idea that i put forward all magicians are rocket scientists anyone who has a back garden that they're doing permaculture in is part of the space program anyone who is working to bring humanity together 
is part of the space program. So it doesn't mean that you have to be part of the the nuts and bolts like like space industries. Um, I think all of us need to kind of retool and rethink about ourselves, not a, not even as individuals, you know, not even as a civilization, but as the only people who can get life off planet and can and can help it survive in the universe, which I believe is our destiny. Um, so do you think um, people like Elon Musk are, are, are a good thing or a bad thing, basically? Because they, they seem to be dubious at best. Elon Musk, good or bad. Yeah. This is, <laughs> yeah. I mean, my when I've been asked about this before and asked about Elon um, in particular, um, my response is, who do you think Jack Parsons would be working for today? Oh, definitely SpaceX. Definitely. Correct. You know, so it... <laughs> It doesn't matter what we personally think about the foibles of Elon Musk. So the personality of Elon Musk isn't isn't like one way or another, you know, whether you enjoy him smoking weed on Rogan or whether you're like horrified by him crashing Bitcoin or calling 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 people pedos. Um, it, that's that's kind of a sideshow. That's a sideshow. I think, driven, I think Elon's. I think Elon's quite an interesting guy. I mean, one of the one of the other real parallels is that that Elon is a big fan of a book called um, Twelve Against the Gods, and Twelve Against the Gods is a book which was really really popular at Agape Lodge. Jack Parsons read it. Elron Hubbard read it. Um, like they they passed it around like it was like it was you know the the hottest thing. And Elon Elon tweeted about it I think last year the year year before, and it it promptly like sold out on the second hand market. So there there are there are quite a lot of parallels between the the wild adventurers who were behind the Babylon project and the spirit of Elon Musk. But obviously you know. That doesn't mean that I'm endorsing every element of him, but when I look elsewhere, I don't see, I don't see our, our political elites as having any sense of direction, any sense of vision. And I think that whatever you want to say about Elon, I think he is the one person placed on this planet who we need, who is convinced that we have to go to Mars. But that doesn't mean that I necessarily think he's a, a good guy or a bad guy. I, I don't care. And life doesn't care. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he he's useful at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's talk about um, uh, Parsons and Hubbard for a while. Um, I was thinking maybe it'd be interesting to discuss the kind of the relationship they had. It's one thing I always noticed, like in books like Strange Angel and Love and Rockets, is they often talk about kind of what they did but they don't necessarily talk about their relationship like you know what was the relationship between Parsons and Hubbard was it like a student teacher kind of affair or because I remember Parsons claimed that uh, Hubbard was the most philemic person he'd ever met and this kind yeah. of thing so yeah. yeah it would be good to talk about their kind of relationship yeah I think it was mixed um I think in in different spheres, you know, one was one was the senior partner and one was the junior partner. It kind of moved around a bit. So, when when Jack first met Hubbard, he was he was a hero of Jack because he was one of the science fiction writers. I mean, he was he was one of the guys that 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 Jack was reading, um, and that's 
that's a significant, you know, that that's a significant thing. Um, the fact that you're, you know, you're, you're with one of your heroes. And so, so Jack was massively, you know, massively taken by that, but also because, um, he moved, he moved Hubbard into, um, into the parsonage, uh, 1003. Um, he was also the landlord. Um, he was, you know, he was a trust fund kid. So he had money, he had a, a life and a project of his own. So he wasn't like completely, um, completely starstruck by, by Ron because Ron needed stuff from Jack as well. Um, and then it became more complicated still. So Hubbard turned up and, and, you know, that, as you say, he wrote to, to Crowley saying, oh, he's the most thalamic man I've ever met. Um, he was, he was a, he was a, he was a big character. I mean, one of the difficult things is you look at Hubbard, um, there's a few clips of Hubbard left on YouTube or you, you can watch and he seems like a really unlikable guy. I mean, it's very difficult when you see Ron to, to, to understand why people fell for him, but they did. I mean, he, he was clearly very charismatic in the flesh, even though many people fingered him as a liar pretty damn quickly. Um, they kind of enjoyed being caught up in the excitement that was around him. You know, he was he was a guy who sort of made stuff happen. So he and Jack would like fence in the back garden and and Hubbard would tell his his tall tales about, you know, his his naval career or, you know, shooting polar bears or anything else that pretty much popped into his head. But Jack was the senior partner in magic. So Hubbard came to Jack and he came to Jack um, and Jack recognized him as a thelemite and will have told Ron, this is what you are. Like, this is the system that describes the process of your life. So as a young man, um, uh, Hubbard was a glider pilot and um, he, he tells a lot of other stories about his youth, but he certainly did fly gliders at a young age. That that's, that's a real one. And he had a vision when he was in trouble of a red headed woman, um, sitting on the wing of the plane who he described as the empress. And the way that he describes her, when Jack hears this, it sounds very much like he's describing his holy guardian angel. So within a thalamic concept, uh, within a thalamic context, having knowledge and conversation once holy guardian angel is one of the big steps in in terms of in terms of attainment. So so Jack's Jack's listening to Hubbard's stories and he's going he's going, I see where you fit into Crowley's system, and I see you as a brother because you've been doing this. So Hubbard was a swami in Los Angeles before he 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 hooked up with Jack as well. So. He was he was clearly like engaged in some spiritual um, hijinks. He'd been engaged in some some channel, channeling work with um, another couple of spiritualists, um, a guy called Arthur J. Burks, um, and his spirit scrying sessions with Hubbard are detailed in a book called Monitors. Um, all of these weird texts are in the in the bibliography of Two Antichrists, um, and I've managed to track down most of them in, in hard copies. Um, so there's a whole crazy world that Hubbard's come out of. So Hubbard is, Hubbard and Jack are, Hubbard and Jack are kind of like a sparking off each other. But the thing that really ignites it is that 
they're living in a free love environment. Jack has uh, Jack has um, given up his wife to um, to Wilfred Smith, who is the who was the current who, who was the head of the lodge for a period, and so Jack is living a thalemic um, a thalemic morality. Um, so you know polyamorous, etc. And Jack transferred his attentions to his wife's younger sister, Sarah. Um, and Sarah, by all accounts, was a, a sexually precocious individual. Um, Crowley described her in letters as the alley cat um, due to her propensity to um, having sexual relationships with everyone in the lodge. And obviously, Sarah's going to be a, a complicated girl because she was sexually abused by her father and her sister wasn't. So there's there's a lot of strange things going on there. But Sarah is certainly highly sexed. And Jack, having broken up with Jack, having broken up with her sister, um, ends up in a in a sexual relationship with Sarah. And this is this is a critical thing for him. It it. Um, he describes it again in very thalamic terms, uh, in terms of a kind of a magical incest in the way that you see in Crowley's Yodhe Vauhe formula. So Sarah was kind of a key to unlocking some of Jack's sexual um, complexes at the time. But then Hubbard turns up and Hubbard is, you know, garrulous, fascinating, exciting. And Sarah promptly transfers her affections to Hubbard. So that clearly has an impact on the way that, that Jack and Ron um, relate to each other because Jack is trying to be the, the thalamite, the, the, the new Eon guy, um, but he's just been cuckolded twice. Um, and, you know, he's trying, to, he's trying to deal with all of these complex sexual and emotional energies which are like coursing through him and it's that weird sort of triad between hubbard sarah and jack that really kind of stokes the fires of the babylon working i just got one little question that uh i just want to slip in there is this sarah northrop yes it is yeah and so the one little question just because you may answer it in the book or it may be completely a red herring but is she in any way related to the northrop of the military industrial complex that was even around at the time i i don't know i don't know how how the family line goes out on that one i'm just curious if there was yet further kind of uh time there anyway sorry no that's one for the listeners (laughs) so we're talking about the babylon working here and obviously um in a way this book acts as a continuation slightly of your red goddess book you know because you do kind of delve back into the babylon working again here um could we talk about the babylon working um and more importantly i mean you're right in the book that a lot of the work the second sort of phase of the working does tend to get kind of skipped over quite a lot doesn't it The, the kind of common parlance or the common um you know uh storytelling of jack parsons is he does the babylon working and then blows up but there's yep. a whole period of time um after the initial babylon working where he goes back and does a, a, you know he, he continues his work and um i think that's a real interesting area to explore and um could you could we talk about initially about the original babylon working with with yep. ron and then you know perhaps then dovetail into the um into the kind of antichrist side of, yep. of things. Sure. Well, the, the, 
the first the first working is um, as I've said, like Jack's Jack's lost Sarah to um, to Hubbard, and so he needs a new sexual partner. So the first piece of magic that they do in the Babylon working is uh, is you know you know the classic you know get laid get paid magic. So so Jack is trying to um, secure himself a new lover to replace the lover that he's lost. And so he um, he identifies um, a method of doing this, which can be found in in the eighth degree secrets of the OTO. Um, so it's an it's an advanced Enochian working, which is designed to secure an elemental um, who is there to to be kind of like the the servant of the magician. And so the the Babylon working starts off kind of like small scale with a kind of like Jack's trying to get a lover. Um, and of course he does the, the first series of, of, of invocations and work with, with Hubbard, um, and Marjorie Cameron then suddenly appears and Cameron is the, the spitting image of the elemental that they'd been trying to summon. So that's the first part of working and everything seems pretty, pretty low key. You know, it's, it's not, it's not a huge thing. You know, but it's a it's a successful it's a successful piece of magic, um, and and Cameron Cameron is a pretty remarkable proof um, in that she is very much the new modern woman. But when 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 Cameron leaves after a couple of weeks with Jack, Jack goes out into the desert, and things take a bit of a turn um, in that he ends up receiving a book dictated by the goddess, um, the Book of Babylon, Libra 49. And that tells him something quite heretical and radical within, within the Thelemic corpus. It tells him that, that Crowley's, Crowley's Libra of Allegis, the Book of the Law, has a fourth chapter, a missing fourth chapter, and this is the fourth chapter. And Jack has the new revelation, which is the manifestation of the goddess Babylon. And the goddess Babylon is here to to recalibrate the excesses of Horus. So the the book of the law is all um, you know war and force and fire and destruction and horror. And Jack's seen like. You know, Jack's seen the nuclear bomb occur and all of these things and the the Horus force. Um, he also identifies with fascism and we see, you know, Crowley types with fascism with people like Major JFC Fuller inventing the Blitzkrieg for Hitler. There's there's all kinds of like, you know, magical strangeness going on there. But Jack has Jack receives a very curious text in the desert, which kind of blows everything wide open. It says, no, you're not. You're not just doing a. Uh, you haven't just done a working to procure an elemental. Um, the the goddess of revelation is is imminent and will soon be um, be walking amongst men. And there's a pretty heavy hints that it that it's Cameron herself or potentially Cameron's child who is in fact the manifestation of this um, this radical goddess. So that that's. That's the first Babylon working in a in a nutshell. Um, Jack comes back with the book and they do some further Enochian magic. And then Hubbard runs off with Sarah and a yacht and and defrauds Jack and everything goes goes totally wrong. So people know people know that story pretty well now. Um, 
not perhaps all of the details um, that I mean, certainly there are a lot of new details that, that are in to Antichrist that people won't get from reading a Wikipedia entry. Um, but there's a there's a second phase to Jack's life, which gets missed out. So so Jack's life disintegrates post the first working um, and Hubbard goes off on his own particular tangent. But in 19. 19- 48, so um, two years after the Babylon working, um, Jack has, you know, he's he's moved out of the mansion. He's lived in a variety of places. His relationship with Cameron has gone from bad to worse. He's filed divorce papers um, citing extreme cruelty as the grounds for divorce uh, because Cameron, Cameron, is, Cameron is playing the field and... Um, Sometimes she's there, sometimes she's not there. Sometimes she's into magic, sometimes she isn't into magic. I mean, she's really hot and cold. Um, and Jack's going to bits, obviously, as a result. He's um, he's lost his security clearance. He's pumping gas for a living. I mean, you know, his stellar trajectory is sort of like going badly, badly wrong. So in 1948, uh, he has... Um, he has... Uh, he has a couple of things that trigger him. One, one is the publication of the Kinsey Report, which was um, like dynamite for the American psyche in terms of, you know, the understanding of what sexuality was, what, what male sexuality was in that first Kinsey Report that, that really kind of like ignited things socially. And a lot of the issues that Fleema and Jack were concerned with were, were this, this sexual liberation and what that would do and how, how society would be transformed by it out of this rule of the black brotherhood of Christianity into a a new thalamic world of sexual freedom and liberation and people doing their will. Um, And so Jack is, um, Jack, Jack begins something um, which becomes, which becomes the antichrist working. He, um, he does a three day right to, to Babylon um, in the same way that he closed out the last working with a three day, right? He commences this with a three day, right? And he establishes, um, he establishes a dream contact and he, he begins to uh, follow out the instructions that he's previously had about undertaking a black pilgrimage. Um, there's a great essay on the literary um, antecedents of the black pilgrimage by um Man and Haydenborg White, which can be found online if people have a look. Um, I think it's from from Corazin to Caracosa, something like that. And if you look up Manon, she's she's got a, a really nice piece on that. So Jack Jack doesn't go on a physical pilgrimage, but he goes on a series of like dream workings and recapitulations um, where he's where he's um, he's trying to get in contact with the current that he first established in that in that working with Hubbard, which had flowered in the desert in such a spectacular way. And he does a rite um, called the star working, which is a, a 17 day sex magical working. 17 is the number of the star in the in the Crowley Thoth tarot. So that that's the reason for the number. And he has um, he has sex on 17 consecutive days probably with 17 different partners um some of them might have doubled um and that's likely a combination of um of prostitutes and um and casuals and casual sex with people he knew um and he's he's doing he's doing a very particular piece of of 
of magical work here, which leads to a, a vision in the dream where he travels to the city of Chorazin. And Chorazin is mentioned in the Bible as one of the birthplaces of Antichrist. And so Jack travels in dream to these brooding Cyclopean ruins. And there he encounters the prince of the power of the air. Um, and he previously, he previously encountered the devil as a child. So again, this is a, this is a return. And he, he gets a whole series of new prophecies and he, he essentially undertakes the thelemic ordeal of the abyss. And this, this part of Jack's life tends not to get talked about um, because everything gets like everything gets smashed down into the first working and his death. And what was going on here is something really quite radical and, and also perhaps for people quite dark um, because it's possible to, to, to read the, the Crowley material and to, and to read him talking about the Black Brotherhood and to think of this in a, in, a, in a very broad sense. But Jack's very clear in identifying that the Black Brotherhood is Christianity and that Thelema is here to destroy the Abrahamic religions. Um, that's, that's a big deal. You know, that's something that people still um, still are going to flinch from. Although, you, you know, it's, it's present within Libra Alvarez if you read if you read Crowley's um, some some of the excesses of Crowley in this direction. But but Jack, Jack, Jack writes a manifesto, the manifesto of the Antichrist and issues a whole series of prophecies and is um, is really kind of lit up and on fire. So there's a there's a letter in the period that, that often gets quoted that he sent to Carl Germer. Uh, Carl Germer was the sort of acting head of um, of OTO um, in New York, and it's a really it's a really strange kind of letter, um, and it reads it reads as if Jack is quite psychotic at the time. You know, he sounds to be an individual whose whose mind is frayed, and people have taken that letter and gone well, you know. Jack did the first thing, then he went off the rails and then he died. But what actually happens when you look at the material is that Jack was a very careful magical student. And my opinion on Jack has continued to change. So the Red Goddess is, you know, it's it's a light introduction in some ways. Um, but my 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 take on Jack at that stage of my career, I wasn't massively impressed with Parsons. But the more that I've read and the more that I understand it, I see that he he, in fact, did do exactly everything that Crowley had set down um, in a way that no other students really did. What's kind of interesting is Crowley's own opinion of Parsons seemed to sort of deteriorate, didn't it, um, as they yeah. as they moved along. And he also had a very low opinion pretty early on of Hubbard as well. He, he called him a charlatan, I think, or, a, you know, a con man or something along those yeah. lines. Yeah, I mean Crowley. Crowley clocked Hubbard like immediately as a con as a con man, you know, um, which is pretty incisive. I mean, I I have no doubt of Crowley's ability to 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 read at a distance, um, both both through his magical skills and also his ability to 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 decode the the letters that he was receiving from the various members of the magical lodge. 
And it has to be remembered that Agape Lodge at this time was the only functioning OTO lodge in the world. And the one of the real difficulties that they faced in doing this um, is that firstly, uh, Wilfred Smith, the head of the lodge, was uh, having sex with everyone's wives. Um, so Crowley got angry and said, you know, um, it's becoming that slimy abomination, a love cult. Um because Crowley was much more disciplined than that um, in his approach to magic. So so he had to get rid of this troublesome, um, this troublesome Wilfred T. Smith. Um, and he did so by sending him off on a magical retirement to discover um, discover which God he was. Uh, he said that you're 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 becoming a god, and you have to go and find out what this is, which was kind of like a just a, a cunning way of, of of getting the fox out of the hen house. <laughs> um, and so, what Crowley Crowley really micro tried to micromanage the the Agape Lodge at a distance, and he was pleased with Jack to start with because Jack was bright. He was getting things um, he was getting things moving. He was preparing essays. He was preparing teaching. He was recruiting people. And most importantly, he was sending money back to, to Crowley, um, who was, you know, in pretty reserve, reduced circumstances at uh, 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 Netherwood at this period. So, so Crowley, Crowley needed the cash. And when Parsons was providing the cash, he was, he was the golden boy. <laughs> but when Parsons, um, when Parsons, uh, uh, started to engage in this work and other people in the lodge kind of tittle tattled on him. Then he wrote, you know, um, let me see if I can, I can paraphrase it. Um, Parsons is, uh, Parsons is trying to produce a moon child. Um, and I cannot, you know, I cannot believe the, the idiocy of these, of these goats. Um, he was, he was really, he was really upset that, that, Jack was going off and 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 doing something like kind of on on his own. So so Crowley's a I mean, it's pretty clear from the record that Crowley is a shitty guru. I mean, everyone who everyone who got anywhere within his system, he ended up he ended up throwing out on their ear. I mean, whether that's whether that's Freighter Akkad or whether that's Leah Hersig or, you know, like right. Israel Regardi with all those like anti-Semitic slurs. I mean, Crowley was atrocious with other people, like atrocious. So his opinion of Jack was like first good, then bad. But that's because he was hedging his bets and trying to and also dying. I mean, the, the other thing to remember is that Jack's writing to a very, a very sick man and Alistair is trying to find someone to take over because he knows that he's running out of time and he knows in many ways that he's, he's probably failed that his great world religion that he, that he staked everything on is not, is not rolling out and being successful. You know, Henry T Ford has not responded to his letter. You know, Adolf Hitler did not respond to his letter. Um, no, you know, no major government wants anything to do with his world religion. So Crowley is feeling pretty, you know, pretty reduced at this stage. Um, and eventually he, eventually he bets on, um, on Grady McMurtry, um, as the as the as the caliph to take over OTO and Grady McMurtry's another kind of another car crash story for another time. <laughs> 
yeah, the horizontal horizontal ninth degrees, etc. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so one thing that's kind of interesting in the book is where you you kind of draw a comparison between the OTO and the Church of Scientology, and you sort of you know, yeah, that the- makes me popular with everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Scientology and OTO are very much like kind of like the shadows of each other that they don't want to see institutionally. I mean, Scientology is a is a hierarchical grade-based system with a with a central guru who is insisting that everyone buys his books and does what he says so it looks you know you can draw some superficial similarities between them you can look at the grade structure and you can go go is 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 the is the path to total freedom in scientology the same as the 10 10 steps in uh, the 10 steps in oto um and what you actually find is is something quite different is going on. Um, Hubbard Hubbard very much takes an imprint from his time with Jack at Agape Lodge, um, emotionally um, and also magically. Hubbard Hubbard is identifying himself in this period as a magician very, very, very clearly. I mean, before he got to Jack, he was studying um, studying psychology and hypnosis and all of these kind of science of mind things. And Hubbard is quite like Crowley in that he's a very driven individual and he's constantly working to improve himself. And, you know, he's, yeah, he's, uh, and he's a curate's egg. You know, there, there, there are good and bad things about the man with Hubbard mostly bad. Um but Hubbard, Hubbard actually takes a lot of the ideas within OTO and Thelema and keeps them to himself for his own personal development rather than like putting them into the cult. Because the real, the real division between OTO and Scientology is that OTO is a, is a Masonic cult which is based around the teaching of a sex magical secret and the sex magical secret of the OTO is, um, is, um, is spermonostic. So it's to do with the, the potency of the, the male elixir, the male seed. So this is like, you know, the central secret of OTO is about, about the different methods of working, working with that male energy. Whereas Scientology, uh, there is no sex magic, you know, that they doesn't figure, um, Hubbard was pretty. Um, Hubbard was pretty confused about sex. He had um, probably had a. Um, he probably had a venereal disease. He'd picked up at one stage, um, which had made him pretty wary about the whole thing. He had this younger partner, and he he clearly couldn't keep up with her sexually, which was like you know problematic for him. But he also was very very taken with with Crowley and I think um the way that Hubbard often worked is kind of like the kind of like the Patricia Highsmith novel The Talented Mr Ripley where um where 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 the um the the young upstart um um identifies with copies and then takes over the life of the person who um who has become their prey and I think Hubbard did that first with Jack um, we see that, um, we see that in his lifetime, um, Hubbard wrote, Hubbard wrote a short story where he, um, where he used, uh, a pseudonym, but he claimed that, uh, he claimed that Hubbard had created a, a, a rocket, 
motor which was more efficient than anyone else ever had done and um all of these kind of lies so he started to kind of take jack's accomplishments and make them his own and when you encounter this people who are pathological liars on the on the scale that hubbard is the the boundaries between lies and truth become very very mutable very very quickly um so there, there are examples where 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 crowley breaks the surface in scientology and that's a problem for scientology because they they of course famously say that hubbard tried to break up a black magical cult when he was with jack and they just kind of like draw a line um under the whole babylon working thing and go hubbard was with naval intelligence and obviously that's that's all untrue um but in one of his lectures in um, 1952, um, so pretty late, Hubbard, uh, Hubbard refers to Crowley as my friend, Alistair Crowley. And then he describes himself personally as the Prince of Darkness. Um, and there, there's, there's this kind of, the, the weird, weird things around Hubbard and Crowley, um, and those particularly come out with the the, the unreliable testimony of his son uh, Nibs. So, um, w- when I was doing my master's degree, it was looking at um, Scientology. Actually, weirdly, uh, I did a criminology master's degree, and um, one of the um, uh, things I did was trying to get. I tried to get hold of a like a baseline copy, an early copy of Dianetics. Um, and I did manage to eventually find one. Um, and there's quite a lot of stuff redacted from the modern version of Dianetics. Um, yeah. uh, in, in particular, something called a demon circuit that you mentioned yep. in their book. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because that fascinated me at the time. And I was just, your book's the first time I've seen anybody else really bring that up. Yeah, in the the first time that Dianetics breaks the surface is it's published in one of the the, the, the pulp sci-fi magazines. It's published in Astounding in... Um, Trying to think what the date is. Um, May 1950. May 1950 edition of Astounding Magazine, a science fiction magazine um, that, of course, Hubbard had written for and that Campbell was editing, contains this first draft of, of Dianetics, the new science of mind, which kind of like sits there amongst all the science fiction stories. And um, it seems really weird to us that 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 this huge new breakthrough would be um would be appearing in this kind of company but at the time all the science fiction writers were were in a were in a very weird period where um where where the things that they were saying about the future were coming true so they were starting to gain a lot more credibility than um than they previously had done so dianetics is kind of like is punted out there and it's it's written both by hubbard and by campbell so um there's both both their hands in it. Um, Hubbard was initially there. There are some um, there are some influences in Dianetics from um, from uh, is it Kozibski? I can't I, I can't get the name right. My Polish Kozibski, is terrible. Is that, um, yeah. Um, and there's also there are also a couple of weird asides. There's there's an aside about the Norns, like the the Fates. The fates have a kind of like a function within this. They're kind of like they're 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 gestured to and then kind of put to one side. And then the idea of the demon circuits is put in. And then 
they move away from the idea of these there being these demon circuits. Um, it's it's all very it's all very um, very strange at that period. But you get a sense of science fiction because science fiction also includes both these 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 kind of like science ideas, you know, and writers who are coming from hard science backgrounds, and mixed into it is this sort of blend of like witchcraft and fantasy and you know so it's a real it's a real stew at that period and yeah the demon circuits idea is is kind of thought about and then that's dropped in the same way that dianetics is a thing and then hubbard kind of loses control of it so it gets relaunched to scientology so it's um it's a cult which is it's a cult which you can see coming into being and one which has these kind of these kind of like fragmentary occult aspects to it. Hmm. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting, um, obviously, we've seen Scientology kind of burn bright as a as a cult or a new religious movement, depending on which you know term you prefer to use. Um, and we're, I believe we're seeing it start to you know the the, the flames start to flicker, as it were, on yeah. on, on on Scientology. So. But one thing that I find quite interesting in the book is, and we get to talk about is what could like occultists learn from Scientology? I know that's not a popular uh, thing to do, um, but what could, you know, what could we learn from the kind of successes of Scientology uh, as occultists? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think one of the things that, that, that Jack said kind of like um, is worth looking at here. Jack, Jack said that... Um, um, Magic was, magic was losing the ideas war because we didn't we didn't have a way to state things simply um, and a way to a way to reach out to people and 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 put the ideas in a way that were comprehensible the the difficulty always for for magic in the occult is that there's a really high bar to entry in terms of like it it is a it is a um, it is an intellectual tradition it requires that you have a pretty broad range of reading and uh and reading reading in obscure areas in order to even make sense of some of the basic texts um so one of the things that perhaps we can learn from scientology is stating things a in a little more straightforward fashion um now the early the early kind of like courses in scientology i think are quite effective um, there's something that Scientology like offers to people that they can do, that they get an immediate return from. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Scientology, you know, does so well is that at those at those stages, you you actually get a benefit. You know, you 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 can get a benefit from from studying Scientology, although I advise people not to. Um, it's um, you know, it's disciplined. It's um, it has that that um, that process of, of self-examination that that is sometimes missing in magic. I mean, we see it with like, um, we see it with Israel Regardi telling people to do psychoanalysis alongside with their, their Golden Dawn training or whatever. Um, but there needs to be, there needs to be a degree of introspection. And I think, you know, I think, the focus when you're in an auditing session and you're like you're holding on to the electrodes and like someone's asking you questions, it's really, you know, it's it's immediate. It's um, there's a feedback 
loop established and and you feel you feel validated by someone caring enough to ask about you whereas magic doesn't have any of those kind of like ways in for people you know there's not there's not there's not a simple set of things and there's not an there's not and there's not any infrastructure you know i mean scientology has you know has a, a a fleet of cruise ships it owns clearwater florida it has underground bunkers in the desert filled with hubbard stuff um and i think you know what does the oto own like they don't even own chefaloo they don't you know they, it's it's a mess um i don't think that occultists have done a very good job of presenting themselves as as uh, as successful in the world and so perhaps 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 we could learn a little bit about how we present ourselves and how seriously we take ourselves um and also about how we talk to people who are outside of the circle because what we do is what we do is always going to be for the few i mean it's it it doesn't scale particularly well um, but we still we still need to understand that people are asking these questions and, and when they come to magic, I don't think they come away with good answers. I think very often people who approach magic would be better served getting a decent Ashtanga yoga class and uh, and taking a psychedelic with uh, with a with a with a non doctrinaire group. They probably get more benefit from that. So, uh, I mean keeping that in mind what is what, what how where do you see kind of occultism going you know uh, magic and this kind of thing you know moving forward what what do we need uh, to yeah. to keep it alive yeah. kind of thing and, and beating well let's look at the scientology example again like scientology is disintegrating um they're down to probably two and a half thousand members of sea org um no one is really joining Scientology apart from those people who are born into it because the exposés have been so effective, you know, whether that's Leah Remini or Louis Theroux or, you know, a thousand other people who've, who've shown what, a, what, a, what essentially a scam it is. Um, as Scientology disintegrates, what we see is more and more squirrels. That's people who've left Scientology and are continuing to use the technology in an open source Scientology fashion. Um, obviously under the, um, under the under the fair game rules, they they are persecuted by by their brethren as a result of doing this. But Scientology is essentially becoming open source, whether whether the cult wishes it to or not. There's no way that you can prevent the dissemination of information in a digital world, and that's what's happened to the occult. Um, I'm able to talk to you and talk to a global audience of people who have, for the most part never shared physical space or temple space at any time. Um, I'm connected to a machine which will allow me access to all of the secret documents of the OTO simply by typing a few search terms into Google. So the occult is becoming open source. Whether we like it or not, that's what's happening as a result of digital technology. And I think that open sourcing of the occult um, something that perhaps we saw with the initial promise of chaos magic, um, where the, the moribund structures of the order were kind of assaulted by this new kind of punk aesthetic. That was, that was interesting and it was necessary at the time. But I think we're in a more sophisticated age now where we have to, we have to move away from the old way of doing some things. 
So the structures, the big frame structures of orders, for example, they they just not they just don't function in the modern world. But what does work is um, distributed networks, and I think we're moving into a distributed network um, age where people are connected through podcasts, through Discord servers, um, and then then hopefully with actual individuals within their local environment i think the these are the kind of the two forces that, that that need to come into play one is accepting the fact that we live in a digital de de-secreted world but the secrets the secrets protect themselves because if you don't do it um which is the protection for most things if you don't do it, you'll never know so it doesn't really matter that much what you write um but we need to we need to also we need to also return to the body. So although I'm talking about the, the potential digital tools we have, I think the, the, the embodiment crisis that we're facing in culture means the magic also has to push harder into the body and has to, um, has to, has to understand the importance of where we actually stand. So we need to be, we need to be able to establish magic, both, both locally and globally and, and, interplanetary at the same time it's balancing those three so with with that in mind then um in what sort of directions do you think uh listeners you would send listeners in in regard to as you're saying about um addressing the body and and some of these broader issues other than obviously yeah. one might direct you people to scarlet imprint but aside from that and not necessarily limited to just texts uh where do you think the sort of pulse is right now that people that are wanting to know more should be heading? Okay, well, we're, you're very lucky people listening if you're in that position. Like you are the most fortunate generation on earth ever in terms of your access to material. But that requires that you develop discrimination. There's a lot of garbage, there are a lot of people trying to fuck you, trying to take your money and trying to gain power over you. So the critical thing for anyone who's engaged in this work is, first of all, remember money, sex, power is generally what people are, are after. So, so, so be aware when you're moving in this space that the same faults that you find in all humans, you will find in occult circles. So be wary. In terms of practice, you are you're 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 hugely lucky so you need a physical practice um i would recommend in the same way that 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 crowley did that you have a yoga practice of some kind um and the intention that you bring to that practice is what's important um and i would also suggest that you have a practice like that when you're a beginner and you have an external teacher who will correct you and keep your ego in check um number two um Breath work. Um, breath work is absolutely critical. Um, and I would recommend in open source sense that you all have a look at uh, what Wim Hof, um, the Iceman, has done because his techniques of, um, of essentially Tumo are powerful, accessible, easy to do. You can look it up on YouTube. You can start a practice now. And that's fundamentally powerful and transformative. And that, that's something you need to do. You need to sort your diet out. I'm not going to give you a dietary um, prescription. Um, I've gone through everything from vegan, raw food. Now I 
now my personal diet is as much wild food as possible. Um, I eat quite a lot of meat in the way that many shamanic cultures do. Um, I fast, I intermittent fast, I drink bone broth. I do limited supplementation, but whatever, I, I can't tell you what works with your body and your environment. Those things are really important to get lined up. Um, you need to, you need to read, um, and you need to read in a discriminating fashion. Um, obviously I, you know, I'm happy if you buy books from Scarlet Imprint, but I'm happy if you buy books from anyone carefully. And if you read outside of your subject area. So the advice I give is if you buy one occult book, don't go buy another fucking occult book immediately afterwards and just stack them up on your shelf and take, take shelfies for Instagram. That's just, that's, a, that's, that's doing no one any good. Buy a book of magic and then buy a book on another subject. Educate yourself. Within 10 years, you can become an expert in any field. 10 years. If you run concurrent projects alongside your magical projects, you can continue to, you can continue to be an effective person in the world. And we need effective magicians in the world. Um, ritual, ritual practice, again, working on who you are in the world that you're in. Um, make sure that your practice is based in where you are in the world know the plants around your house, like basic, you know, witchcraft 101, know, know all the plants in your area, know the spirits in your area, know the myths, know the stories, um, repeat those stories and myths, use the local, use, use as many local things as you possibly can in your magic. And, and that will ground you in something that's real. That's just kind of some top line thoughts. <laughs> Thank you very much. Nice one. Excellent. So I, I, th I think that's pretty much a good place to uh you know uh, to to end um but one thing this is just a sort of side note really obviously recently crowley's work became um public domain which is correct obviously is has disturbed certain groups uh, a little bit um uh, we've seen like uh some smaller publishing houses putting out some crowley work like hellfire yep. books and you know etc but c could we ever see scarlet imprint uh crowley books do you think um Based on my um, based on my somewhat um, somewhat prickly relationship with um, with with the OTO, it's pretty unlikely. Um, one of the one of the things we want to do with Scarlet is like keep pushing things forward. I mean, yeah, it would be lovely to produce some Crowley editions, but the the constraints on our time are such that we can produce we can produce maybe four books a year if we're working absolutely flat out um, because. It's two people. We're perfectionists. We do everything, and producing work, books properly is time-consuming. Just printing stuff that you're not proved edited or have a clue about what you're doing with is is easy and cheap. Um, so we can't do easy and cheap. Would I like to publish Crowley? It might be nice. It might be nice to produce an edition of something, um, but I don't have any plans. But I'm delighted. I'm delighted that it's becoming open source um my major gripe is that the parsons material isn't um and we still have a significant amount of time before those gatekeepers deign to publish or release it yeah the ota seem pretty ineffectual at, uh, actually releasing crowley books don't they have you I've noticed yeah. this it seems yeah, to be they've they've okay um straight talking Straight talking, everyone I know in the higher echelons of OTO, 
is frustrated as all hell about the publishing program, let alone the promotion through the grades. Like it's hit a brick wall. Now, publishing books is hard. It's difficult. It's time consuming. I mean, it's it's much harder than people realize. Um, and so I know that there are there there can be legitimate reasons for it. But but quite honestly, from the outside, it looks like like Scientology, they've run out of energy. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the the last thing that came out was uh, Book of Thoth, I think, wasn't it? But prior to that, I can't remember the last book that came out. It's it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Thoth's the moneymaker because people buy the tarot deck and then they 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 want to understand how it works, and so they mistakenly buy Book of Thoth and it melts their heads. So. <laughs> Anyway, Peter, um, just to let people know, you can buy the two Antichrists from Scarlet Imprint directly, and also from your from. I think they they turn up. Your books turn up everywhere, don't they? They're in pretty much every occult bookshop. Uh, yeah, yeah. Decent occult. If bookshop. you have a local bookshop, occult bookshop, support a local occult bookshop. If you want to buy from us direct, we ship worldwide. And I'm assuming there's a, a Bibliotech Rouge version coming out as well. Yeah, there's a Bibliotech Rouge version out. Yeah. Okay, brilliant, yeah. fantastic. Well, Peter, it's been a long time coming getting yeah. you on this particular show. It's and you know, fantastic to speak to you. Absolutely, absolutely. No, my, my pleasure, guys. Great to catch up. Thanks ever so much. Okay, we're back. So that was fun. Um, Peter's always great, um, and I, you know, really enjoyed talking to him. It's a bit weird that we haven't had him on before, to be honest. Like I said, we know the guy personally. He's you know a big a big figure in the occult world, and uh, um, you know, but you know, we we waited for a prime moment. That's the way I like to think of it. But anyway, um, yeah, I really enjoyed talking to Peter. Uh, we're definitely going to have to get him back on soon. We have another podcast uh, planned. Um, not this one or CCN, which Josh is now uh, manning. Um, it's, yeah, it's 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 going to be. I don't want to really announce it yet, but it's we've we've had this really good idea for a, a new podcast that will will run parallel to this podcast, and it's it, it's more in tow with this podcast as well. I know that a lot of people didn't like CCN um, that listened to this show um, and felt that you know we neglected this show in the past, and they're probably right to a degree. But anyway, we're um, we're, we're we have a new show coming. Um, it should be good. So anyway, next week we are going to be bringing back Alan Greenfield. Uh, we recorded two parts. We only released the first part. So next week will be Alan Greenfield. And then moving forward will be all new interviews. Um, and hopefully that new podcast will be starting sooner rather than later. So we should have a load of new content coming. Um, also some video content. Uh, we're starting to film that next week. So that's going to be fun. Anyway, so make sure you check us out on YouTube and subscribe there. We're sort of trying to hit, we're getting close to a thousand. I think I think we're like 800. Um, and we're expecting that to go up once we start releasing new content. Um, uh, join us on Instagram, sitting now with like two posts, I think, on there. I'll, I'll get on that. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. It's a lot of work for one person. Um, also, come and check out the site, sittingnow.co.uk. Um, we're starting to print articles again. Um, we've got a really good one about Kenneth Anger up there by by Mr. Matthew Hughes, who's uh, behind the scenes working with us now on Sitting Now, which is great. Um, so it's all it's all moving. We're all uh, we're back very much 
and it's just the technical quandaries getting in our way um you know attacking us from the technical ether most annoyingly but anyway uh we'll see you next time next week and uh have a good week <laughs>